everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's Parsha. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan before moving to the Parsha. Save the date, Matan will mark 35 years of women's learning with the Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th, or the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual Elul program from September 11th to the 22nd, or the 15th to the 26th of Elul. The Elul program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. There are parallel Hebrew and English programs. Check out Matan's website and all social media platforms for more info. Lastly, if you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Parshat Ki is another of Dream's parshiot that include a variety of commandments. It opens with the case of the Ifatar, a way for a man in war to marry a woman of the enemy camp. This is a classic case of Torah morality, of taking what seemed to have been a common occurrence and creating moral boundaries around that common practice. The parsha continues with a broad array of laws, including inheritance of the eldest son, which was a bigger deal when you were working with polygamous families, the delinquent son and how parents might respond to him. The Torah's response is a little bit different than how we might respond today in the modern world. Returning lost objects, shooing away a mother bird before taking her eggs, creating a protective roof fence, a necessary precaution in a world where many activities were carried out on roofs. The prohibition to combine wool and linen, also known as shatnas, cases of sexual impropriety and their consequences, laws of runaway slaves, the prohibition to take interest, laws pertaining to vows, the laws of divorce, kidnapping, of capital punishment, laws of yibum, of deliberate marriage, and the Parsha ends with the commandment to destroy the memory of Amalek. Each commandment really needs to be studied individually, and in today's episode we'll be studying two of these commandments in this broad assortment that we have in our Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Chana Shacham Razbi, a doctor of Jewish history at Ben-Gurion University. She wrote her dissertation on Elijah the Prophet in medieval Ashkenazi culture, which is in the process of being published as a book. Chana recently returned to Israel after spending a semester as a star fellow at the Center for Jewish Studies at Harvard. In the fall, she will begin a fellowship at the Halpern Center for the Study of Jewish Self-Perception at Barilan University. Chana is also Yotzer Halacha and a member of the Religious Council of Kiryat Gat, where she lives with her family. Hana, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I will also say that while it doesn't appear in the official bio, uh, Hannah and I were charutot for two years, uh, and that is the real depth of our connection. And so it's really fun to have Hannah here speaking with me about something that we really never spoke about in those in those two years of learning. So uh, it's fun always to be able to have on colleagues as well as friends. So you are going to be speaking with us today about two consecutive mitzvot at the end of the 23rd chapter in Verim. So take us into that. And also why of the whole array of mitzvot in the Parsha, that is sort of what caught your eye. Well, today I would like to speak about two consecutive mitzvot. One is the mitzvah of nedarim, of vows, specifically vows that you have to do something or bring something actively. Then the next mitzvah is about how a worker is allowed to eat from the produce that while he is working in someone else's field as a laborer. 
I was just, you know, going through the Parsha. There are so many commandments. And some of them seem to be connected to each other or uh, have some sort of common theme. And some seem to jump around. But what struck me about these two commandments was that one has to do with being careful what comes out of your mouth and what you speak. And following that, it was a commandment about taking care to notice what you eat, what you're putting in your mouth. This idea struck me of the connection and proximity between these two uh, different actions. And I wanted to explore them further and see if we can draw some conclusions about how the Torah looks at our speech that comes out of our mouth and guarding what we um, internalize. One of the ways I think that we often approach looking at these collections of halachot in the Torah is that question that you mentioned of juxtaposition, meaning not only am I going to look at the details or in the case of Durim, how I compare it to how it appears in Shemot or Bamidbar, but we also go, as you said, according to this concept of why are they even put together? Meaning why is that the way that the collection is organized? So that's a great point also in terms of just looking for meaning. In a previous episode with Adina Sternberg, we discussed also, we spoke about structure, which is somewhat related, but more specifically, why do we put these two next to each other? What message does that have for us? Or what we also sometimes call in our more religious parlance, smichut parshiot, right? Why, why is one put next to the other? So great. I love that idea of the whole of the mouth and the way that the mouth is functioning and that this clearly not just happenstance that these two mitzvot are put next to each other. Yes. So I'd like to start with the first mitzvah here, which is nedarim, the vows, and really look at how the Torah is telling us to be very careful and to garnish our, our instincts and not jump up and say what we might, the first thought that might come to our minds, because it has consequences. And I'll read um, the three verses that discuss the mitzvah. If you make a vow to Hashem, do not put off fulfilling it, for Hashem will require it of you, and you will have incurred guilt. You will have a chet if you promise something and you do not deliver on time, then you will be at fault. But then the Torah tells us, If you do not make a vow, if you refrain from making this vow, then you will not incur any guilt. But if you did say something, you must fulfill what left your lips, what crossed out of your mouth into the world, you must perform what you said that you were going to do. Because you promised it to Hashem with your own mouth. So we have here three verses. The first and the last are talking about how to fulfill what you promised that you were going to do and the importance of fulfilling it on time. And the middle verse is saying, you know, if you want to avoid getting in trouble and you want to avoid having to worry and stress about not fulfilling your vows on time, you really don't have to in the first place. And the seriousness of how much you have paying vow, fulfilling vows on time is a very serious matter. It is discussed in the first chapter of Masachat Rosh Hashanah, 
when Gemara is discussing the first Mishnah, and there are from Daf Dalad Amud Aleph until Daf Vav Amud Bet, from 4a to 6b is a discussion of how you have to be so careful not to bring your Obanot Nedava, your vows of um, voluntary sacrifices, late. And the question, there are many debates of how do you count making sure that it's not late? Do you count three regalim, three festivals uh, along the way? Do you always count from Pesach? Do you always count up to Shav- the closest you get to Sukkot? Um, what happens if you find a specific animal and that specific animal can no longer be brought as a sacrifice? Do you have to switch the animal? Do you have to still make it on time? Many, many debates about many, many details that the rabbis take bal te'achar and being late with fulfilling your vows very, very seriously. I'll also just throw in there, in the wonderful commentary of the JPS on Sefer Dvarim, there's a great introduction to many of these mitzvot. And, and in the introduction to the timely fulfillment of vows in these three psukim that you've read, I think that there's a, a worthy few sentences to read. Petition for divine assistance often took the form of vows. A person who sought God's aid in achieving a desired goal or relief from trouble might promise to do something pleasing to God uh, in gratitude for his assistance, right? If we'd say, please let me have this deal work out and then I'll bring you a, a sacrifice. Uh, and those words were taken extremely seriously because those words were also thought to have significant power. And I would say it's a more, even a heightened version of prayer, much more heightened than how we look at it today. But this was a common way that people communicated, unlike in our world today. And at first glance, it could kind of look like a bargain with God. But the practice as it appears in the Torah and in our tradition, as you're bringing also from the Gemara, really takes on a very different form. It's not, it's not a bargain with God. It's really us expressing a commitment in hope that God will also come through for us in the, in the things that we desire in our life. So it's kind of like hard to fathom our words having so much significance. But in the ancient world, and certainly later on also, even in the post-ancient but pre-Talmudic world, words were taken very, very seriously. And all these halachot surrounding nidarim, surrounding vows, really reflect that value. And I can even bring us further, and my uh, background as a medievalist, to say that vows were taken very, very seriously, even into the high Middle Ages things begin to shift in the 12th and 13th century. And vows of fealty and vows at court and vows um, were really the foundation of how society could function in the hierarchy of, in the, um, in the economy. All, a lot of the basic interactions between people and between different kinds of uh, communities and their deities
and approaching and in a time where we are thinking and reflecting about our lives and thinking, how can we be better? How can we improve? How can we improve our relationship with God? How can we improve our relationship with the people around us? How can we be better people? And it's very tempting to look around and say, you know what? In this coming year, I will take upon myself to do X, Y, Z. I will take upon myself to perfect this specific mitzvah in my life. And then Kabbalah passes and Tishrei passes, and we have to get into life and mundane reality and routine. And what we promised ourselves and how we thought so highly of our capabilities a month or two ago, we see that it just doesn't fit into our lives, that it's too hard or not the right mitzvah for us to, to have the opportunity to excel at. And that, I think, is a lesson that we can learn from these, this mitzvah. Even if at the moment we cannot make vows to bring um, sacrifices to Hashem at the Beit HaMikdash, we can still take the lesson of you will have fault. Do we want to invite the option of finding fault in ourselves when we realize that we're not going to be able to fulfill our vows? Or do we want to say, okay, I want to have goals. I will set myself achievable goals. But I don't have to hold myself to the standard of a vow. And then when reality presents other opportunities and other goals and things that are, might be better for me that were options that did not exist before, I will have the freedom to reevaluate and see how I can better myself in the actual reality that I will be in. Wait, and Hannah, is that how you're understanding the psukim here? Meaning, choose carefully what you speak or how you speak, because maybe better off that you don't speak and that you're able to fulfill what you said? Is, is that how you're understanding the psukim here? So I think um, I might be taking it to a more personal interpretation, but I do think that the psukim and the traditional commentators really look at the central, the center psukim, uh, verse 23, that you really don't have to make a vow. If you refrain, you will mm-hmm. not have guilt. You will not have fault. Okay? It's really, it's very clear that, that the Torah is saying you don't have to make vows. Right. So sometimes it's better off to aim, aim a little lower, you're saying. Mm-hmm. Aim, aim a little lower and keep things realistic than to you know, sort of jump into this big pot and realize I don't even know how to swim, right? I, I don't even I don't even know how to get myself out of there. Of course, Halacha creates a mechanism, but the Torah is saying maybe better off not even having to use the mechanism. You should have thought a little bit more beforehand what you were intending on getting yourself into. And I think that this um, idea carries through this parasha specifically and Sefer Devarim as a whole. To finish off discussing this, this mitzvah and kind of connect it, to the wider um, theme of, of the Parsha, I'd like to bring in the, what Rav Meir Shapira of Lublin, the Rosh Hashiva of Lublin, in the beginning of the 20th century, he would always tell his students the verse, Go, my sons, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of God. And it doesn't really make sense to go and listen. You should come and listen. 
He was telling them, mm -hmm. you have to go out into the world. And if you still hear what, I'm, what you were taught, and if what you were taught carries with you into the world, then I know that you have learned the fear of God. And I think a lot, reading through this parasha, a lot of the mitzvot are dealing with situations that are not ideal. All kinds of, of either preparing ahead of time so that something bad does not happen, like putting up a market, a... Yeah, protective fence on the a roof. protective fence around your roof, because people fall. In an ideal world, people do not fall. In the real world, something can happen, and you have to prepare for it. Or if you have the stories of all the sexual impropriety and family problems and interpersonal relations that have problems or how to help someone who is struggling financially. We have all kinds of mm -hmm. things like that in this parasha. And it's, I find the common theme to be, what do you do in the real world? You're leaving the desert. You're going into Eretz Israel. You are now expected to build cities and plow fields and create life and life is messy and sometimes you cannot fulfill your vows and sometimes your family does not look the way that you thought it was going to look when people grow up and all sorts of other situations that arise and Torah here is giving us mitzvot of how to deal with situations that arise in the real world and in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I think it's a great point because you have other parshiot in Sefer Dream, like, for example, the one that will come after, that sort of are looking higher up. Let's see how we're going to make the judicial system or we're going to look at the curses and the, the blessings. And you're saying that there's something about this collection that's particularly human. There's something particularly real-life situation. And and even, again, as you're saying, the the, after, the the less than ideal situation, situations of divorce, of being in war and desiring this woman, all these cases of things where it's not you know, fulfill Shemitah. It's not how do you lichatchila, how do you initially go about doing things in the proper way, but many, many circumstances where we're finding ourselves already in the, the mire of the less than ideal. And then the Torah comes in and says, here's what you should do. And what's interesting though, now that I'm thinking about it, as you've been describing this, is that in the case of Nidarim, it actually starts with the initial, meaning what you do if you're going to make a vow, but then it says, but just know that ideally maybe you shouldn't even be there to begin with, whereas other mitzvot actually start off already in the in the after-the-fact situation. So Nidarim actually sort of plays both sides of that. But other other examples in the parasha, for example, as you said, the whole uh, series here of, of laws of sexual impropriety are, are clearly dealing with unideal situations to begin with. So I think that's an interesting point to think about which mitzvot open up with our goal of where we'd like to be. Again, I'll take Shemitah as an example as we sort of wind down the Shemitah here uh, versus all these mitzvot which, which start off as their starting point of you're going to find yourself in an perfect situation and here's what you should do when you're in that situation i think it's a really great point and a great prism through which to read and learn different mitzvot in the torah Before we move on to the second uh, mitzvah I would like to, to discuss with us to, with you today, I would like to share the perspective of Kohelet on vows. And this is in the fifth chapter, the fourth uh, pasuk. He says, 
טוב אשר לא תידור, משתידור ולא תשלם. It is better that you not make a vow, than make a vow and then not fulfill it. I think that kind of sums up what we were discussing today. I think another axiom we have that I definitely try and utilize in life is that silence is a great way to achieve wisdom, meaning sometimes it's just better not to speak. And uh, that's obviously harder for some more than others. But I think that it's a related axiom. This sort of has halachic garb to it regarding the darim, but I think that they say very similar things. Be careful, well, because out of your mouth, and sometimes it's better just not to say anything at all. So our second mitzvah for today. Our second mitzvah for today When you enter a fellow's vineyard, you may eat as many grapes as you want until you are full, but you must not put any in your vessels. So um, Chazal understood from this pasuk that it is talking about a laborer who is working in the, in the vineyard, and the second pasuk is talking about field mm-hmm. and that the same rules apply and how it, they, there are many different details and many approaches of how it was understood that this was supposed to be a laborer and not just someone walking through and that could be a whole uh, discussion into itself but I would really like to focus on the question of what the laborer is allowed to put in his mouth to eat. Mm-hmm. Is this a mitzvah for the benefit of the laborer? Or is this a mitzvah for the benefit of the owner of the vineyard? And Torah Tzunima actually brings in a wonderful insight. And I would like you to tell us, introduce us a little bit to the Torah Tzunima. Sure. Our figure for today, as we always like to try and highlight a figure in each of these episodes, is uh, the Torah Tzunima, what often happens is that people are identified by their magnum opus, uh, but his real name was Baruch Halevi Epstein. I was born in 1860 and died in 1941 in Nazi Germany. He is the author of the Torah Tamima, which is, really became one of the most popular sfarim of the century. His father, notably, was Rav Yechiel Michal uh, Epstein, who was the Aruch HaShulchan, also often known as that, a series of very significant halachic uh, responsa. And Rav, uh, Rav Baruch HaLevi Epstein, the Torah Tamima, his uncle was an Itziv. These are just looming uh, pre-war, what we'd still call modern Ashkenazi thinkers, although interestingly, apparently the Epstein family was actually initially Sephardic, uh, and they were kicked out of Spain, and they ultimately adopted the name Epstein, although initially their name was Benveniste, uh, but they adopted the name Epstein. Rav Baruch HaLevi Epstein had a photographic memory, which I think is an important piece uh, to, that enables us to understand how he could ever have created the Torah Tamima. The Torah Tamima is essentially a commentary on the Torah, which aims to bring all relevant uh, oral Torah, Torah Shabal Peh material on the Pasuk. So any, the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, all the Agadic Midrashim and also the Halachic Midrashim, he literally brings them almost like in an anthology, uh, but he also brings them in sometimes clearer language and he makes himself all these different emendations and he brings them all on the Pesukim. It is still today, even with the Barilan disc and all these ways that we can look things up, is still one of the easiest ways to find in a wonderful collection of Chazal's commentary on any given Pasuk in the Torah. And it's unbelievable because he wrote it before there were any computer programs that could do this for you. That is the part that always boggles my mind the most when I read his commentary is that I still find it unbelievably illuminating and 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 this 
insane anthology of commentaries and he did it before there was any sort of uh, technology that could support that kind of study. So it's an unbelievable human feat and therefore his photographic memory I think is an important piece to understand. And something else I'll add just in in the short biography of him is that he never really became a formal Rav. Uh, he received uh, smicha from some of the greatest rabbis at the time. He was a tremendous Talmud Chacham, but he never ended up accepting a rabbinical position. He had a small stint in 1923. We actually went to America to try and find one, um, but he didn't. And so instead, he worked his life as an accountant and a banker in the city of Pinsk. And in the evenings, he learned Torah and, and wrote. He also has a massive... Uh, a multiple volume memoir that he writes as well that really describes and gives us this phenomenal insight into the into the rabbinic personalities of his age. So he's really just this one of these fascinating modern figures. And as I said, next week we'll be speaking much more in depth about the Nitziv, about his uncle. And I think that that'll be a nice complement to uh, to some of this information today. I'll just end this little introduction by reading you two lines from his introduction to his Torah commentary. And he, he goes on and on about the fact that as when you're reading the Torah, you can't possibly be able to hold in your mind all of the many places, even just in the Talmud, where this pasuk, this verse could be spoken about. How could you remember what it says in Masechah Megillah and what it says in Masechah Tanit? So he says, my job is I want to put it all together so you can see it all in front of you. And he says, שמאז חתימת התלמודים לא נתעורר אף אחד מן החכמים למלא חסרון גדול ועיקר זה, בעיקר ויסוד תורתנו. He says, since the time of the Gemara, no one seemed to think that this is something that they had to take upon themselves. So he says that I decided to take this upon myself to put these sources together in, in a much clearer fashion. לצרף ולאחד את שתי התורות כאחת. And this is a very important piece because it also speaks to the historical background that he wanted to show that the oral Torah was is still just as relevant as the written Torah. And this is sort of a century later, but still somewhat of a backlash to biblical criticism and, and general uh, thoughts about the unnecessary nature of Torah Shabel Peh, uh, or sort of overemphasis on Pshat. And so he says that I want to make sure that they would be looked at, literally think about two folios, one next to the other. And that I wanted to combine the Torah Shabalpeh and the Torah Shabichtav. And so he really sees himself as a shaliach, as a real messenger to the world, because this is something that nobody had done, or I would even say was able to do until he does it. And really, the reason why I wanted to bring him as our um, Torah scholar of the session of the week is because I was, I wanted to, to explore these two psukim and going through Mikroat um, lot. Uh, in the usual commentators, I didn't really find much about this pasuk about the laborer eating the grapes. It was very technical of what he's allowed to eat, and is he allowed to eat the whole grape, or does he have to, you know, the, the technicalities of the words? And I couldn't find really someone who was discussing the idea. And then I opened up the Torah to Mima, and he has four pages on it. And I'm not going to go into all four pages on it because he really discusses the different approaches of why it's a laborer and why this is a good idea and how this helps. I just want to focus on the last paragraph where he says what that actually giving the if we if we are letting the laborer eat while he is in the field, then we are making him a better laborer. He will work better as if he is not tired and not thirsty and not hungry while he is working. He will put more into his day of work. So actually, the 
owner of the field is getting more for their money. Hmm. But why is he not allowed to take any of it home? Surely, if the owner of the field gives him an allotment that he's allowed to take home, then on top of his payment for the day, then he will be a much better laborer because he will not be worried about feeding his family when he gets home. So improve even more. But no. Mm -hmm. Rav Epstein says here that, and I'm paraphrasing, that if you give too much, you end up losing out. What does he mean? That if you would let the laborer take for his family, then he will take everything for his family and not eat during the day, and then he will be weak, and then he will not work as well. So actually, you're not, you might think that you're helping him out more, but you're actually undercutting his success. You know, that's interesting. He's working off a very particular psychology mm-hmm. here, which is that when you first read the Pasuk, let's take two mm-hmm. steps back. Why do the sources have to say that it's a laborer? Because when you first read the Pasukim, it sounds like, it's talking about a random person. Like if I walk into someone's field and I could just take anything I want, but make sure not to take it home, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds like that's not something that it would work in any society. And that's why Chazal come and clarify that it's speaking about a laborer because this pasuk makes no sense if it's not in the context of someone who is legally on the land. But he's sort of taking it in a way that I think is very kind way of looking at human nature because we would naturally say, well, you're not allowed to take it home because that'll make you a bit of a pig. It'll make you a bit greedy and therefore you shouldn't do that. But he's saying something very kind and gracious about humankind that, well, people who are told that they're given a gift, they're just going to save the money for their children, right? So don't let them have a gift. They should, sorry, let them have a gift, but don't let them tell them they could take it home so that they'll just be able to take uh, what is what is duly theirs and not try and save it for others, as opposed to someone who just might, you know, be a bit of a chazer and, and fill up three baskets. So he does bring the out on the psukim of Lusovecha that you should be satiated, but you shouldn't overeat. Uh, yeah. that, is, that is discussed in, in the commentators. But it's really this, this kind look at what benefits everybody, what benefits in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I think that this really juxtaposes with the Nazarene and saying, what? yes, you want to be very, very righteous and you want to make a lot of vows to God and you want to be closer to God and you want to have a reason that will make you come and bring more sacrifices at the temple. And you want to come to the Mikdash more often. But it might end up being your undoing because reality might not work in your favor. You can mm-hmm. still come to Beit HaMikdash as much as you want, but maybe think twice about tying yourself in with a vow. And here, you might want to give your laborers everything. You might want to take care of your people as much as you can, but access might be a stumbling block. Too much will, will backfire. Giving people, maintaining the boundaries of owner of employer and employee, maintaining rules, maintaining limits can be much more effective. So one, on one side, we have when limits can be a problem and cause you to come to fault and to guilt. And on the other side, we have the importance of boundaries, the importance of limits that, that safeguard the best interests of all parties. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I'm also thinking that 
while I'm not really familiar with uh, with research on and workplace cultures, I'm thinking also about those really furbished kitchens that they have at big companies, which is sort of the modern picture in my mind of what it means to like let them eat the the berries or the corn or whatever it is that they're picking in the field. Um, but not really to take it home, meaning there's a value in them eating it at the workplace, but not letting the workplace home boundary be blurred um, because that's a boundary that needs to be maintained. I think that that has a lot of interesting import, and I, I'm always happy for anybody listening who may be familiar with more of that kind of culture and, and research on that to sort of send over an email and share some thoughts. And I think that that's really relevant. Another side of it is sometimes people are saying, let's highlight that you're giving people too much in the workplace and therefore they are blurring the lines of where they need to leave and go home. So it kind of also works in both ways of how to balance that out. Mm-hmm. And perhaps when Rob Epstein came to America to print his books and to look for a job, we're talking about the 20s, we're talking about movements for laborers' rights. And harsh working conditions. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe mm. he was exposed to things. I really didn't have a chance to, to look into the details of his biography or more than that. But he is in the first half of the 20th century. A lot of these discussions are going on about work and humanity and how the laborers being treated properly. And I'm following the... Um, industrial revolution of the previous generation so that's also something to bring into the conversation it's a fascinating point which again is the gift of also learning a person uh, an exegete who's a modern exegete that they're living in a world that we really have a quite a sense of what they're what they're seeing in the world around them Hannah, this was beautiful thanks for joining me today thank you so much yosefa for inviting me it is such a pleasure to learn Torah with you again I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.